Lucy Strange has worked as an actor, singer and storyteller before becoming a secondary school English teacher. Her debut novel, The Secret of Nightingale Wood, is set just after the First World War. Following the death of her brother, Henrietta's family moves to Hope House, where strange secrets lurk in the shadows and the forgotten attic. But it is in Nightingale Wood that she makes a discovery that will change her world. This was followed by Our Castle by the Sea, another mystery, this time set during the Second World War. This story fuses historical drama with ancient legend. Lucy's most recent novel, The Ghost of Goswater, is a family mystery set at the cusp of the 19th and 20th centuries. The Earl of Goswater has died and his 12-year-old daughter Agatha is cast out of her ancestral home by her villainous cousin Clarence. She learns that her real father is a humble local goose farmer. But who was her mother? And why did the aristocratic Goswaters raise her as their own? To tell us more about this romantic ghost story, Lucy joins us today in the Reading Corner. Hello, thank you very much for having me, Nikki. Lovely to be here. Lots of things to talk about, but I wanted to start really with your characters and your heroine, Agatha, mm. who later becomes Aggie. Um, she's a great heroine and reminded me a little bit of some of the heroines from classic stories, which I know um, because you, you've talked about it and they're also referenced in your books. I know that you <laughs> um, enjoy them. But tell us a little bit about Agatha. Well, I think for a start, I've, all three of my books so far um, have been written from first person perspective. So I'm in character as my protagonist, as my young protagonist. My first two heroines, Henry in Nightingale Wood and Petra in um, Our Castle by the Sea, I actually did a lot, quite a lot of work on them. Um, and their, I suppose how they, how they needed to develop and I had to make Henry a lot braver and, and, and all sorts of um, work that had to happen during the editing process. But Aggie in Goswater <laughs> just sort of arrived, fully formed and fierce, and uh, unwilling to just let things lie. And she is, she's just, she was so much fun to write. It was so much fun writing as Aggie. Um, also interesting working with a protagonist who isn't instantly likable. She does, one of the first things she does is she steals something. Um, and she, she was the sort of character that surprised you as you were writing it. It was, it was I really enjoyed it. <laughs> In that respect, she does have a little in common with Mary Lennox from The Secret Garden, who yes, you yes. start off not liking, but there is some grit uh, behind yeah. that character. Yeah, grit's a good word. Yeah, Mary yeah. Lennox, she's really selfish, isn't she? She's really sort of sour and selfish. And I, I think she's a brilliant character because I suppose the way in which she grows and changes and Actually, I'm quite inspired by um, Frances Hodgson Burnett's stories. And A Little Princess was part of the inspiration behind this book, the idea of a, a riches to rags story. Um, but obviously one that ends slightly differently. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of the things that I absolutely loved about her um, was what a difficult change in her life to go from being a kind of lesser nobility in this hall and everything that is attendant with that mm. having to go to live with her new father who essentially is a goose farmer in mm. a very humble cottage 
and it's not without difficulty, but I was impressed by how quickly she settled in to that work, even though there was a little resentment there quite naturally. That's a sense of character there, I think. It is, but I also think part of the reason she she adapts and and sort of gets stuck into it is is pride she won't let thomas um the man she's been told is her real father she won't let thomas think of her as a spoilt little miss she's determined to sort of prove that she can she can do it she's not going to be beaten by anything and of course it does help if you've got a really horrible antagonist (laughs) (laughs) because you don't want them to get the better of you do you (laughs) no no, absolutely yeah it's 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 that sense of fighting and she fights all the way through the book she's fighting for the truth she's fighting to fighting for her inheritance she's fighting to find out um about her about her past and who she really is Mm. it's a story that uh crosses different genre really but the ghost um, is obviously there in the title and there is a ghost story element to it what in your view are the qualities of a good ghost story and how did you try to capture them in this tale that's that's a lovely question um I mean obviously the tradition of ghost stories the ghost is the most terrifying thing within within the story but I wanted to play with that and do something a bit different um with the ghost character so Although there are some really quite sort of spooky, chilling scenes involving the ghost, the real terror in the story comes from that antagonist you mentioned, comes from wicked old uh, cousin Clarence. So that was very much my intention. I wanted to use these elements um, of the gothic genre. I wanted to play with with the conventions of ghost stories and have all these ingredients in there, but sort of make something fresh. There is something that is a, a, a common trope in ghost stories, which I think does come through in your tale in like a classic sense. And that's about a ghost is there in a way to put right the wrongs mm. of the past. Yeah, that's that it, that happens is, in it? your story, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And actually, nasty old Sexton Black, who's the, the grave digger on, on the cemetery island in the lake, um, he, he is sort of haunted character a twisted and haunted character and he believes absolutely in these ghosts and he's the first person to tell Agatha about these ghosts and about this uh, local folk uh, story I suppose that um, that every every new year when the when the clock strikes midnight it's something the soul of a restless um, uh, asquith will creep through that crack in time crack between centuries but as a story idea the having a ghostly character there who is who is there to dig something up from the past and to right the wrongs of the past it works so so well as a, um, a feature in the narrative it gives you so much to play with I think as you've mentioned the gravedigger uh, and this cemetery island where all the asquiths are buried um, I think we have to turn to Hamlet at this point, which is referenced mm-hmm. quite a lot through uh, the story. And actually, a little bit like the gravedigger in Hamlet, I did chuckle at, uh, you know, that scene <laughs> where he first appears, because he's so exaggerated. You know, it does also have that slight humour to it as well. Yeah. Or is that just me? <laughs> no, no. And it is and it is there. And I I, I, I take great pride in in writing books I think can be enjoyed on on different levels I think it can be enjoyed as a straightforward adventure mystery spooky adventure mystery story but there is a lot in there for for bookworms and for people who know the works that are being referenced 
Um, and yeah, absolutely, the the grave diggers in Hamlet, and also the idea of the oh yeah, that's that's Hamlet, isn't it? The idea of the ghost coming back to 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 um to try and uh, bring about justice. Yes, yeah, Sexton Sexton Black, he was a really really interesting one to write, and I had to be careful how I how I how far I pushed it with him actually because he is violent and frightening, um, but he's a haunted character in himself as well. Maybe there's one other character before we, we we move on to other aspects of the story, because when she's playing Aggie, she finds it much easier to make friends. And there's this wonderful, he, again, he sort of reminded me of Dickon from The Secret Garden. <laughs> yeah. And that's yeah. Bryn Black. Tell us connection with animals. Yeah, I hadn't even thought of that. <laughs> yeah, tell <laughs> us a little bit about him. <laughs> well, with Bryn, uh, I think humour was the key that he's a character who he has not had an easy life at all um but he doesn't feel sorry for himself he's just he's got this lovely kind of positive way of seeing things and he's he Bryn is all about moving forwards and 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 um you know embracing the adventures that is uh, that are to come and he's not one to dwell on the past and so he's a really good sort of counterbalance to Aggie whose character is, is now being drawn back into the, the sort of the dark secrets of um in the history of the Asquith family so Bryn works really really well as sort of a yeah a, count, a counterweight for her character and he brings a lightness to the story as well, the way he kind of jokes and, and um, his, his playful manner. But there's a very sincere friendship there too. Um, and it's her first proper friend, her first real friend, but she's had this weird, isolated childhood in this sort of gilded cage um, at Goswater Hall. And we obviously we find out later on why, why she's been isolated in this way. But he's, he's so important to, to Aggie as a character. We're not going to go to the ending because people have to discover that for themselves. But I will just say it's very heartwarming and maybe a tear or two did leak from my eye. Oh, oh. I made made myself. That's always a good sign, isn't it? I made myself cry when I was writing it as well. I think I think it's important to be immersed uh, in these moments to make sure they work properly. I'm glad I'm glad it had that effect. Let's talk about where the story's set. It's a fictional place. There is no Goswater, um, but it is in the landscape of the Lake District. Mm. Um, did you have a real place in mind? Is Goswater Hall based on a real house? Tell us a little bit about your placing of the story. Well, the, the landscape is actually, it's all important really in this story because I'd been fiddling around with this idea for a long time. It never really took off. And I was on holiday in the Lake District in 2017. And I don't know what happened. It was quite a sort of magical moment, really. I suddenly had the idea of setting the story there and it was just explosive. It was fantastic. Suddenly I had a character and a concept and a landscape that they all just they just fitted each other had this big dramatic landscape for this big dramatic story it was the scale of it mm-hmm. it needed that scale and it's really really crucial for me that that the atmosphere of the story and the, the sense of these these huge brooding mountains surrounding them actually the the lake itself goswater it, it is fictional you're absolutely right um but is based loosely on Ullswater which is a particularly beautiful part um, of the lakes. Goswater Hall itself is completely fictional. The village of Goswater, um, that's all fictional. But obviously they're, they're sort of within travelling distance of Penrith, which as we know is a, is a real place. So I've taken a, a real setting and then placed this fictional um, village 
uh, within it and it's it's quite a fun thing for a writer to do because it gives you gives you re real things to to pick from to help sort of spark some ideas in the story but it also gives you the freedom to do what you want with it within your little world mm. uh, within that as part of that um did you ever come across an island that was basically that you had to row and it was where all the cemetery was I love that <laughs> not not a cemetery island in the lake um but actually I, when I visited Venice a couple of years ago went to the, the cemetery island off Venice and that was a, a big part of the inspiration for the um for Skelter Island in this story I'd love to hear a bit of the story um actually when they're rowing out to the island for the funeral of what Ag Agatha believes to have been her father I'm going to read the bit, I'll read the bit just before they set off. So there's so the bit where she's standing on the jetty and um, yeah, they're about, to, they're about to row out to Skelter Island. The boats are here, waiting to take us out to Skelter Island, the cemetery island in the middle of the lake. We move down the jetty in silence and one by one, we are helped into the boats by black gloved servants. I don't recognise anyone apart from cousin Clarence and he does not choose to look at me. He is talking to an elderly lady wearing a large brimmed black hat and a necklace heavy with emeralds. They walk carefully along the jetty, arm in arm. The lady seems to be very frail. I notice that Clarence is wearing one of father's most expensive cravats, the orange one with the pheasants. I don't think it is at all the sort of thing one should wear to a funeral. I look down at the frosty slats of the jetty. The dark wood is etched with patterns of ice, silvery veins and frost thorns. My black patent footsteps turn them to grey mush. My breath is a shiver of steam in the cold morning air. The first boats are already leaving, the oars pushing through the cold, still water with even little splashes. When, eventually, I'm the only one left standing there on the jetty, something horrible happens. I don't know why, but instead of looking down at the boat I'm about to climb aboard, I glance at the boat that has just cast off, and I find that the elderly lady who was talking to Cousin Clarence is looking back at me. Her eyes are staring, huge and fixed, and her mouth opens in an O of terror. I stare back at her, frozen. The elderly lady's hand goes up to her throat as if she is suffocating, and then she collapses into the bottom of the boat. A blonde woman sitting next to her screams in fright, and the sound pierces the cold air ringing around the high, rocky banks of the lake until it feels as if the fells themselves are screeching. A gulf of cormorants takes to the sky in a black, splashing panic. Suddenly people are shouting and fussing and the boat rocks dangerously as people stand to look and move to help. Is she dead? The blonde woman asks, is she dead? Someone has lifted the elderly lady out of the boat and placed her on the jetty just a few feet away from where I am standing. Her body is limp and her face is grey. Yes, she is dead. There we are. <laughs> when you read that in the context of the story, it is a shocking moment. I mean, who dies on the way to the funeral? <laughs> Um, what about this Gosswater and the name that you invented for it? You play around with the etymology of it a little bit, don't you? I do, I do. I can't help it. It's the English teacher in me. I love, I love playing with the uh, the origins of words. I always think about the origins of the names and what the, what the names mean. The characters often have um, have quite significant names, and the word Gosswater itself is a bit of a play on words. So that the etymology of goose and the etymology of ghost are actually very similar. And if you track them back far enough um, through time, they, they, they both have used this stem goss at various 
a different point. So there is this possibility that the lake could be named after the geese that are farmed on its banks, goose water, or is it actually named after the ghosts that haunt Cemetery Island? Is it ghost water? Mm. We've said that it's a mystery story, and this mystery is around the coat of arms of Gosswater Hall and the jewels that are part of that, and the geese. And I think we need to know a little bit more about how all of that fits together without revealing the story (laughs) without giving too much away I had the idea of a a jewel it being an heirloom but it also being a significant symbol of power um so we have the 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 queen stone which was beautiful white opal and the the story um the, the Asquith family legend if you like is that this was actually a gift to the Asquith family after they they saved um the queen of England at the time and this has been in the in the family for for centuries, the Queenstone, and it mysteriously disappears um, sometime before um, Agatha is born. So she's never actually seen it, and to her, it's a, it's a myth, the Queenstone. But um, nasty old cousin Clarence, with his fixation on on wealth and power, um, decides he can't be a true Earl of Goswater without this symbolic talisman, this stone. So he buys himself. Um, a black opal in exactly the same size so it will fit into the the family shield that's there on the landing of Goswater Hall and he calls it the Kingstone and it's this idea of him sort of trying to uh, trying to play the role um, but there's something that they're not it's not authentic it's not real um, but we have this lovely sort of pairing of the the, the white opal the black opal the Queenstone and the Kingstone and Aggie says it feels it reminds her of a game of chess this, this sense of um the, the queen versus the versus the king and this becomes almost like a treasure hunt as well because uh, Clarence is uh, becomes um, obsessed with the idea of finding the original opal a mystery story has to be quite carefully plotted you've got to give things away you can't give too much away mm. it's got to resolve in a satisfactory yes that could be how it happened so do you plot very tightly because of that? And do you have to change things to make it all fit together? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, I do. I love mystery stories. I've got my my real uh, literary weakness is a really, really juicy murder mystery. And I've loved them since I was since I was very young. Got into Agatha Christie. I was probably about 11. Um, and I've, I've just got this theory that all really good stories or at least all of my favorite stories have got elements of mysteries within them so they've got little clues that are placed throughout the story and these threads that are really carefully almost invisibly wound through the story at points and then and then you see how they how they all tie together in this really satisfying way at the end and you can have red herrings and um and different characters that we suspect of different things and and I I I really enjoy playing with those elements and it it can be a huge challenge because you've clues have got to be in there but not too noticeable and it's they need to work in such a way that you can have really effective twists I so you can set up a moment that will create that real (gasps) gasp um and those are really fun to set up as well but quite often the mystery and the, the, the way that all of those elements are kind of knitted together 
that comes through the original planning, but then the editing. And when you change something in an edit, you obviously then have to go back and make sure that everything still, does everything still work? And if you take something out, you have to make sure that everything is stitched back together again in, in a way that works. So the ed it does make the editing process trickier because it's not as linear everything everything is is sort of more three-dimensional in a way that you've got these these different layers going on you've got the you know the action plot and then you've got the mystery plot that's kind of woven around that have you got it mapped out visually I have it sort of chapter by chapter in a notebook and I sometimes do sort of color coding so I can see where the different plot threads uh, are but basically I have the whole thing in my head and my editor finds it um slightly <laughs> disconcerting one thing that I really appreciated in your writing is how sensory it is. And there's a little bit, for instance, I think it's easy enough to draw on the visual. But when you talk about smell, it really makes me stop and think. And I hadn't really considered whether snow has a smell. There's a beautiful bit when there's snow coming, the air smells like cold metal, and wet too, but not clarty wet like rain, clean, bright, wet, white. And um, I just think that's wonderful. So I suppose there is a question about whether you're consciously thinking about those senses as you write. I think I do at times, actually. I'm, I'm constantly aware of doing everything I can to help my reader be immersed in the story and sensory details I mean it's, it's important not to overload it I think but sensory details like that I think really really help the younger reader in particular just to sort of feel like they're like they're there in the story I also think and I work quite hard on the um the very the, getting the words spot on for that sort of thing because it has to feel it has to feel authentic and you have to be careful to avoid cliche and, and, and that sort of thing any, anyway but finding the right word I talk about this when I do creative writing um sessions in schools but it's all about finding the right words and and the words that actually trigger something in in your imagination I mean that description of snow um vocabulary I think this is a really important thing that actually it's finding the right word not necessarily the most elaborate word not necessarily the longest word because they're mm. quite simple mm. air smells like cold metal and wet too the only one that perhaps is less familiar is clarty yes and that's a little bit of dialect so there, there are little bits of um a dialect from Cumbria um in the story uh again that was it that was one that I worked on um, with my editor and we went back and forth on that because I wanted there to be enough dialect enough suggestion of, of the local accent in the dialogue for it to feel real and for it to feel placed and authentic um, but I think you have to be careful as well that you don't um, you don't then make it alienating it's, it's so you haven't got a, a, a young reader sort of struggling over these unfamiliar uh, words so that so there's there should be hopefully what we've ended up with is enough that's enough there to create the sense of a local uh, regional um, accent and dialect but without it being um, an obstacle at any point yeah 
Yeah, absolutely. Can I just turn for the last few minutes of our podcast here to what we can expect from you next, Lucy? Are you working? Oh. Are you, have you finished a manuscript or are you writing a story? Where are you up to? I am, uh, I think about a third of the way, maybe coming up to halfway through my next book for Chicken House, which will hopefully be out uh, towards the end of next year. It is uh, a bit less historical than my other ones so far. I've gone a little bit more into sort of fantasy and folk tale with this one. Uh, I've come back down south as well. <laughs> so this one is inspired by the landscape of the Romney Marsh, this sort of vast salt marsh um, area down towards the south coast of England. And oh, what can I tell you about it? It's, yeah, very sort of folk tale It's quite eerie and creepy and it's got a, a witchcraft and dark magic. I love anything set on a good salt marsh. I live here close to the Essex coast, which also is the, talking about geese, is the sort of home of the snow geese and the Brent geese. So, yeah, oh, fantastic. Um, yeah, I like, I'm going to certainly look forward to reading the next story in the meantime I'd like to um, commend the ghosts of Gosswater to uh, anybody that's listening in today and as this goes out just before Christmas 2020 uh, it strikes me that it will be a really good read for anybody to snuggle down by a log fire or a good fireside tale (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much for talking to us today Lucy Thank you very much for having me, Nikki. It's been really lovely talking to you.